Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. Hello, and uh, today our subject is the cryptocalypse. That's the massive declines in the value of cryptocurrencies, which, if you remember, were supposed to disrupt our financial system. Do you remember that, Neil? I do, yes. It was going to change the world. And that seems to have been changed rather seriously itself. Yeah, well, the question, I suppose, is do cryptocurrencies really work or do they work only when the price is going up? On the way down, nothing seems to function quite as it should, a trait common to Ponzi schemes down the ages. In the current market carnage, the exchanges that have promoted digital currencies have a lot to answer for. Bitcoin is down nearly 60% over the past six months as investors dump it for boring old real currency. Remember that? That's the stuff it was supposed to disrupt. (laughs) Paper currencies. Oh, yes. Yes. It's a newfangled thing, aren't they? Can't trust them. Stable (laughs) coins, crypto that's supposed to stay the same level against the dollar, have broken free from their moorings. Crypto exchanges, which have made fortunes for their founders by peddling this stuff, such as Binance and FTX, have been announcing temporary suspensions of trading. And all this is happening in an unregulated sandpit where these assets are hype dumped without anyone really setting any rules. So I'm really pleased today. Here we are in Neil's garden. It's a beautiful day. Sun shining down. Neil's wearing a funny floppy hat. All's well with the world. (laughs) At least the real world rather than the crypto world. But I'm very pleased that we're here in this Neil's garden with Isabella Kaminska, who's the founder of Blindspot, a financial news site, ex-financial times, Alphaville, and a whiz on all things crypto. Hi, welcome, Izzy. Very nice to see you. Thank you for having me. I think we should start by just talking a little bit about this crash and how serious you think it is. If you look at the grand scheme of like crypto crashes and in times gone by, it's not unprecedented. Like crypto has had a lot of these winters, as they like to call. So what makes it different this time, I think, is the perception that it's maybe more concrete and more long lasting than the other crypto winters. And I think that is because its timing has come just as the Fed has started raising rates. Do you think it's as a result of them raising rates? Yeah, I do, actually. Personally, I think um, that sort of era of cheap money has come to an end. And with that, the first, you know, domino to fall is going to be the most speculative part of the market, which was crypto which depends essentially on an incredibly pro-risk-on attitude. And when money gets tighter, then like a CDO, I see it as like the first tranche of global liquidity getting mopped up. Of course, that was the canary in the coal mine at the start of the 2008 financial crisis, that these uh, things became unmoored. Do you think something similar is taking place at the moment, or do you think it's just another correction that they will get past. I think it's like a cross between 2008 and dot com. It's like the perfect fusion of those two crises, isn't it? Because on the one hand, the similarities with 2008 are the financial engineering and, and this idea that we had created systems that were totally immune from like conventional risks in the, in the financial system. And then the other side of it is the sort of casino style, you know, money printing world of the dot com era where everyone was basically printing their own currency as well, but in the form of stock and using it to pay out their employees or whatever. And that came to a grinding halt, if you recall, also within the tightening cycle of the Fed. So I think there is 
common sort of similarity between those two, and it's merged into the crypto crisis. The difference this time around is whether it's more contained. And I think maybe there is a fair argument to say that it hasn't got to the systemic stage. In fact, I would say in some ways, crypto is operated like a honeypot attracting the worst of like financial speculation and taking it outside of the conventional core financial system. And it's remained quite gated. And now was actually the moment when the divide between crypto and core was starting to kind of... I mean, the difference here, in here, I'm speaking from a position of almost perfect ignorance, but it does seem to me that one of the differences here is that I always think of cryptocurrency as sort of Bitcoin or things of bored apes sitting on a kind of branch or something a sort of non-fungible <laughs> token. But of course, we have these things called stablecoin now. And as far as I can understand it, stablecoin, unlike Bitcoin, is made to be stable, i.e. to keep its value, not to shoot up and down like Bitcoin has. And, and presumably, the idea is to try and encourage people to use it as a medium for making transactions, as well as just speculating on its value. And it basically means, presumably, that it will be more it's the way in which you bring it into the mainstream finance. But what we've seen is, is sort of in this crisis, of course, that the so-called stable coins didn't turn out to be very stable at all. You have a thing about horses, I think. <laughs> <laughs> the horse, is uh, the horse has bolted. Ho, ho. <laughs> but the... but hang on, she's got to answer my question first before you just bang on. <laughs> oh, I don't no, know. I think, I think you're right, but I think it's also important to understand that stable coins emerged because of a market need. Because crypto was so volatile, people, when they were speculating in the market, they always wanted to take profits and bank their money in somewhere relatively stable. Right. But the market essentially created these things yep. as a way to retain the capital within the crypto economy, like a capital control exercise, because it didn't want the fiat currency to leave the system. And the on-ramping and off-ramping of fiat in and out of the system is where the main friction is. So stablecoins were kind of created as a mechanism to keep the capital in the system. But what happens then? Do stablecoins lend to each other? Do they lend to people in stablecoin? Because the whole point about having my money in Bitcoin is it goes up. I mean, yes, it could go down. Oh. But if, if I have it in a thing which just stays at a dollar, it's That's not very interesting. That's if you're interesting. a hodler, right? So if you're a hodler ah, and you just hodlers. buy and you don't trade sell. in and out of your stable coin. But if you're like an active trader, okay. you need a hodler. Hold on for dear life. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Okay, I'll try. To hodl is like a as a market sort of originated time deposit. It's, it's, it's effectively, I'm going to keep my money in crypto. I'm never going to exit no matter what. But the trading community wanted to take profit and like do trading strategies. And of course, because of the frictions between the regulated space and the unregulated space, they had to effectively synthesize a copycat of the dollar system. And that's where stable coins emerged. They were going to be like the PayPal of crypto. And in the original incarnation, which was Tether, yeah. they were materialized through fiat coming into a some sort of custodial yeah, arrangement. In this case. Yeah. yeah. And them issuing like a money market fund or even an ETF yeah. tokens against that collateral. But what do I get? So I buy a dollar worth of Bitcoin, it goes to two dollars. I feel relieved and I want to hold on for dear life or hodl. <laughs> so I then say I'm going to put it into an account full of stablecoin. Do I get any return on my stablecoin or no, do I don't. just hold my stablecoin 
in a pile of stable coins. People use it for all sorts of reasons. But part- I'm not, it's not itself giving part- me a return. No, no, coin. no, no. Okay. It's mainly as a trading mechanism. And also sometimes if your wealth is trapped in the crypto economy, getting it out means lots of KYC and AML, proving your identity and making sure you're That's not Russian. No, your client and anti-money <laughs> laundering listeners. You know, you're not, thank, you're thank you're you not Vladimir Putin here. Yeah, yeah. You, If you want yeah, to yeah, like yeah. be able to sort of transfer value in a, tr- in a stable way, you might take your crypto gain put them in a stable coin and then send that stable coin over to because it's trapped in that crypto regulatory sort of light touch arena so these stable coins now have 150 billion dollars yeah in them and those are real dollars because somebody somewhere has paid a real dollar for them or for the things that they bought and they've traded back into a stable coin in theory yes so in theory your money is absolutely safe there but in practice i don't think it is so they originally started as like the market selling point was that they would every dollar invested would be kept in a depository account but of course the reality is that this was effectively a narrow narrow bank right but those aren't very profitable to operate because um, (laughs) right unless uh, light bulb moment there right so (laughs) Well, without the, fraud, of course. Fraud is um, so a great the incentive, way of uh, getting the money so out. So the incentive for the stablecoin operators to was to, to effectively do a bit of asset transformation. So rather than putting your money, because customers' money, into a, a time deposit at a licensed bank, which is how they originated, they started taking more and more risk. So we're punting in the bond market, but most recently in commercial paper and in cryptos. So we're talking here really about, I think, Tether, which is one of the big stable coins, where effectively they say, if you buy a dollar's worth of Tether, we will hold your money in a bank or in some sort of place where it's safe as a reserve. But you're saying that that, of course, is not a very profitable thing just to put it in a pile in a bank. We don't know, really, I think. Not just that. Do we know where where it all goes? Well, Well, one of the things with Tether was that they would claim that they were hindered in this like noble endeavor because no bank wanted to bank them. them. And as a result, they had to get creative with where they put these cuts. So if you've got yeah, loads bank of customers... in Panama. <laughs> yeah. And then so they had to take more and more re- risk in terms of who they were banking with. Yeah. And then the community started to stress like, are the dollars really there? Yeah. Then they got hacked a few times and nobody was sure whether or not the reserves were really there. So they then commissioned a bunch of auditors to try and like regain confidence, you know, that the reserves were really there. Nobody then trusted whether the audits were true <laughs> yeah, or not. Because they were, they were well short of actually saying where they were. They just wanted a firm order. There was a bit of obfuscation, one okay. might say. But obviously in the interim, there was slippage between the collateral they had amassed and the liabilities they had put out into the system. As a result, they started to kind of look at investing in assets that might go up in value to compensate mm-hmm. for the capital okay. depreciation, yep. which then made it a mark-to-market exercise, if Okay, that makes well, sense. that means that what they did was they made it risky. Yes. So, so, so <laughs> use, let's use simple words here. So that's one way of doing it, is to say, a bit like, I don't know, the Hong Kong dollar, every stable Hong Kong dollar or stable coin is backed by a like real a currency board. Currency mm-hmm. board. The other way is this tether has gone down a bit, but it hasn't collapsed. But the other way of doing it is this algorithmic Terra Luna system, which I have to say, I had to spend a yeah. few minutes reading up on, but I'm still not sure I understand it. But broadly, there are two sister currencies. So basically, because the conventional and less risky way of managing these, these things wasn't very profitable, yeah. the great brains in the crypto industry, well, they effectively tried to engineer a proxy for doing this. And So Terra, Terra Luna, let's just right, focus so on them. 
So essentially, they created an arbitrage mechanism. So it's not backed by an algorithm. It's really backed by an arbitrage between... This is the guy in South Korea, I think. No, Do Kwan. Do Kwan. It, it's not actually backed by anything. No, because... No. So, they, it, so, the so like a synthetic ETF, it's essentially a promise that they will always be able to deliver on a redemption request because they have this magical arbitrage process. So they can take the proceeds and do whatever they want with them because they feel confident that in the event of any slippage in, in the NAV, in the net asset value to the tradable token, they can recapitalize through the lunar coin, okay? okay. And the coin operated, in my opinion, the best metaphor is like what Enron used to do with the raptors, Okay. Remember the raptors? Yeah, they, they went well. I, I'm <laughs> going I'm to read out a description that I've got in front of me because I think one needs to get this thing in one's mind. So the mechanism is designed to keep... There are two sister currencies, Terra and Luna. The mechanism is supposed to keep Terra always at $1. So if it trades at 99 cents at any point, an automatic process prints more Luna and uses them to buy Terra until it's back to a dollar. And if it goes to $1 and a cent... The process reverses and you print more Terra and use them to buy Luna until it's back to $1. You can look at this as a very rational and clever system, but you could also look at it as the, what I would call the Rudolf Havenstein <laughs> school of the what? currency. Rudolf Havenstein was the man who ran the <laughs> we rice digress, bank. We digress, I think. He ran the rice bank at the time. It, it decided that the way oh, to solve all the money problems in Germany after the First World War was to print rice marks faster and faster. So, I mean, essentially, if anyone ever loses confidence i mean the whole system hinges on the lunar bit and if anyone ever loses confidence yeah it is and it actually goes to zero there's no amount of lunar you can print at zero that will ever make terror worth a dollar i mean it is actually a confidence trick thank yeah. you for that explanation which is very good i think the interesting question is how <laughs> did it get to this point in the first place why didn't people say well hang on this is pulling itself up by its own bootstraps. And it's well, how the, did paper the, currencies the, get to this point? <laughs> well, because well, I, I can explain that, but I think that's beyond the scope on, of this volume. <laughs> because, I, and, and look, first of all, there have been other algorithmic coins that have failed already. So the, the oh. model was already being tested. But so Lu Terra Luna promising. became a systemic issue just because, not systemic, systemic within the crypto world, because of how popular they got. And the reason they got popular is because Luna was on a positive trajectory effectively the equity being absorbed into Luna was being used to subsidize any slippage or variance in, in the ability of Terra to, to match the dollar, right? That allowed for the perception of stability. But actually, for me, the moment the confidence trick became sort of unwound was when they decided to add Bitcoin to their reserves as a sort of additional layer of trust, you know, so, so that the community could feel assured that it wasn't just the algorithm that was backing the thing, but also this nice little reserve of Bitcoin. And that was like a massive failure in what I would call sort of their own central bank comms, because the moment you signal to the market that you need a reserve at all, you're signaling that the, you don't really trust the arbitrage mechanism. Yeah, I see that. So yeah. why did the market believe it in the first place when it was so transparently flawed? There were many of these algorithmic coins that have already failed. So the market, I think, should have known better, frankly. But there was this irrational exuberance related to the performance mm. of Luna. And when these equity values go up, they ratchet up and create, you know, FOMO. People think it's... missing out. FOMO, but, exactly. But this is a very old concept, really, isn't it? It's a thing called the death spiral convertible 
which is if you you will know all about these, you probably issued oh, one yeah, in your days as a stockbroker. <laughs> with, with <laughs> I think the I actually the did issue household one. Well, was, little else. Yeah, yeah. So a death spiral convertible is basically where you have the right to convert something into a, a bond into a share. But the, the number of shares you get flexes with the value, so you always get the same value. So, of course, if the share goes to nothing, you end up with infinite number of shares and the, the whole thing is dead. Oh, that's a really nothing. interesting so comparison. It's, it's, yeah. it's, and what's interesting about it, it is a financial no-no. It's, you don't see many death spiral convertibles <laughs> issued these days because no. companies and investors have become sceptical that they are indeed a good deal. So <laughs> I think FOMO is probably the most convincing explanation I've heard to the uh, enormous gathering rush to buy these things. Yeah, and also I think we shouldn't underestimate the part that, can I say the C word? Corruption has played in all this because, mm. you know, the crypto market has become so powerful and, and there's so much money sitting in there. They've managed to fund this huge lobbying machine that has just created a sort of gaslighting effect on the entire industry, yeah. which hasn't really helped rationality, frankly. Can I just move it on a bit? Does this matter or is it basically consenting adults losing large amounts of money between themselves or is it going to impinge on the wider financial system which the rest of us depend upon for our investments? I would argue we're still at the point where from a systemic perspective now was the right moment for this to all fall apart. Crypto was still fairly contained and in a funny way had it been more regulated then there would have been more of an expectation for regulators to bail the system out so that's a very good point um it was still a caveat emptor market and i suspect that has allowed it to absorb a lot of the speculation that might otherwise have hit the kind of core financial system as well so it acted like a like a honeypot for all the kind of excesses out of the qe period and hopefully contained them that's in this quantitative little, easing yeah and oh. <laughs> sorry quantitative <laughs> easing but hopefully it's contained. And this is the moment we discovered how contained but, it really is. But do is. you think, it sounds to me as if you think that we'd be better off leaving it where it is in this sort of unregulated sandpit. Because at least then, even if the odd Aunt Agatha basically wades in and basically loses her shirt, Bells. by and large, most people won't because they're basically going to keep it away as much as possible from the mainstream financial system. Do you think that's really where it should stay? Because there are some people who argue, actually, the lesson from all this is we should recognise that this is going to happen and we should start to regulate it like normal financial products. So I think it's useful to have it as a more caveat emptor kind of market because, like, you know, the unintended consequence of regulation is increasing responsibility for that market. Mm. So I think the best way to regulate it is with counter advertising from the regulatory market. I think we've had a lot of that. I and mean, I think every, we have. Which every is central why, banker has said, don't buy these right, things. Right, which is why I think, how do you counter Matt Damon advertising <laughs> to the Super Bowl, whatever, but right? Pointless, but then you sort of do say it's $150 billion in in another 10 years, if it's a trillion, you know, is there a point at which you say, actually, this has outgrown its sort of wild west Well, The one thing I will say about the crypto market is that it doesn't really call for regulation. They're quite happy to suffer these losses. I, I find it a very bizarre market. <laughs> it, it's so resilient in the face of loss. They see it as a sort of like a rite of passage. Almost. It's like, I've survived five crypto winters and I'm still here, you know. Right. They see it... 
they have a different mentality. And, Don't and have a house. <laughs> <laughs> My well, dog's not. left me. <laughs> but I'm still uh, standing. But I'm still standing. <laughs> I mean, I, rather than being one and a half trillion in 10 years' time, it looks to me as that's more likely to be 15 million. I mean, eventually, the people who've made a lot of money will disappear and live in the Bahamas, and the people who have lost it will go home to lick their wounds, even if they don't have a dog left to uh, to go home to. It doesn't seem but to maybe, me to have any sort of But maybe that's momentum. the role it serves in society. Maybe it's that sort of, you know, when you're coming out of school where everyone goes through that naughty phase and they have to experience, you know, smoking behind the bike sheds or whatever. So everyone gets a flirtation with the crypto market, learns their lesson, never does it again. Maybe it's there as a sort of incentive for like young financially engineering minded people to think they know better than the market and then always figure out that they don't yeah well i think it's a bit like paper currency in that way (laughs) do you ever want to be paid in paper currency (laughs) you're right these kind of battle-hardened veterans come through the latest nuclear winter with their kind of lightly irradiated but still fired up (laughs) for another round (laughs) What is the purpose of crypto in the long run? Where do, how does it fit into the system? Is it just a kind of, you know, bet 365 kind of style asset which people have a punt on from every now and then when they're feeling lucky? Or is, I think that's does a jolly it serve good question. a wider purpose? So, a lot, you know, the crypto community would say, oh, it's attracting the brightest minds. You know, people instead of becoming nuclear oh, physicists no. <laughs> are going over yeah. to work in crypto, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But my take is more of a, it is speculation for speculation's sake. It is another offshoot of a gambling you know market if there is any utility to be had in crypto now's the moment it's like with the dot-com bubble like there was a lot of stuff out there that was not wrong just too early right and then out of the debris of the dot-com crash google emerged and amazon emerged right so if there is any utility to be found in this market it's in a winter okay what is the possible application what's the great thing that our listeners saw it happening they could think this is the one this is a time to get in so i'm generally quite skeptical and for a long time bitcoin was seen as a solution looking for a problem right but the one thing i will say is that in the last year or so we have a lot more problems out there than we had like 10 years ago it's now a problem looking for a solution (laughs) i think um There's that. But I do think it might have a role to play in, you know, the dollar is obviously no longer a neutral currency, right? So it has become a highly politicized, sanctions-focused currency. Is it good for Russians then? Yes. In some ways, you could see it as sort of anti-sanctions. But there are always going to be areas of the financial system that are in some ways, challenged unfairly through the sanctions regime, whether that's inadvertently, you know, causing starvation in certain sectors, unintended consequences of sanctions, right? That's one area. I think it might also provide a counterbalance against CBDCs. And I've I've like central bank digital currencies. Acronym Klaxon. (laughs) So with central banks coming in to issue their own stable coins, (laughs) digital currencies. Well, that's um, what they are, aren't they? That are going to be integrated with all sorts of data sets. Uh, an identity you know you, you theoretically you could end up with like an app where your entire digital life is linked to your bank account and then you could mm. and that's great when the government is you know one that you can trust but not so great if suddenly vladimir putin invades the uk and takes say, over the service you found a government you can trust have you? <laughs> well precisely so there is always 
a risk of that. And the thing that Bitcoin does is that it keeps, I compare it to like the right to bear arms. It's best deployed as a deterrent against bad practice in the core system because the core system knows that if it behaves badly, it risks diverting capital into this more fluky, crazy market. But in an ideal world, the deterrent is there, but never utilized. So Bitcoin is there as a hedge, keeping the core system honest, so to speak, but mm. never really actively utilized. Just before we go, I have the mention of the great hope for Bitcoin being or any cryptocurrency being a Russian invasion, which I think is an interesting idea in itself. I think one currency, as listeners will know, I take a great interest in Nibblecoin. <laughs> <laughs> so Nibble I went to have a coin. look. I went to have a look at uh, Nibblecoin to see how they were getting on in the cryptocalypse. And, and I can tell you that there's a widespread uh, on the oh. websites that the less optimistic ones have it at dollar zero. <laughs> but I'm going with the most optimistic price, which is 0.00018. <laughs> Sense. Oh right. Well, the and scope, which the gives scope the entire market nibble here. coin universe a value of forty nine dollars. <laughs> so you going to be enough to buy a loaf of bread if the Russians invade. That was a long time in finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton, and our sponsorship partner is Briefcase News. Join us again next week. I haven't heard the script this time. It's all very exciting. I've emailed it to you. <laughs> Have you? you? Yeah, you don't pay any attention to anything. No, you never answer the phone if we're, okay. if we're trading we these things. We are, like <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, we're not. Oh, yes, we are. <laughs>